Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu. With me in studio are Anne Musa, Tabisolohoko, and Figilin Mwati. In our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Humanitarian situation worsens in Sudan's rebel-held Nuba Mountains and South African doctors to assist in Ebola-affected countries. In economics, experts say sub-Saharan middle class is growing. And in sports news, South African star batsman rested for the third one-day international. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Good morning. Ebola has killed 84 people in just three days, bringing the global death toll to 1,229. The death toll, which passed the 1,000 mark over a week ago, soared higher from last Thursday to Saturday. According to the World Health Organization, the number of confirmed infections jumped by 113 over the three days, bringing the total number of cases to 2,240. Hamas militants in the Gaza Strip have fired rockets at Israel for the second day after fighting resumed with the collapse of truce talks and Israeli airstrike that killed three people in Gaza. Charging that Israel had opened a gateway to hell, Hamas armed wing has vowed to target Israel's Ben-Gurion International Airport with rocket fire, possibly to retaliate for what Hamas was quoted by Israeli media as saying was an Israeli attempt to assassinate its top militant leader, Mohammed Daif, in a Gaza City strike. China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi has pressed his South Sudanese counterpart over renewed violence in the Orange State, demanding an immediate ceasefire and political dialogue in the country, which is heavily reliant on Chinese investment. Government troops clashed with South, South Sudan's rebels last week near the capital of Yiriti State, days after a UN Security Council delegation warned of sanctions if either side violated a ceasefire signed in May. China has played an unusually active diplomatic role in South Sudan and is the biggest investor in its key oil industry. China hopes that both sides in the conflicts can push for an inclusive political process and reach a solution as soon as possible that all sides can accept. The family of an 18-year-old lesbian woman was killed in Fenterstorp in South Africa's northwest province, says the incident reverses the country's efforts to fight against hate crimes. It says it's said that the incident occurred on Women's Month. Disabled Macau was raped and murdered near her home by a male friend last week. The incident has caused public outrage. Lucas Mutibedi has the details. 
Pule Botlukwana, a local resident in Ching Township in Fenersdorp, is accused of the murder and rape of the deceased. Many here, including gay and lesbian community, together with members of Fenersdorp communities, have called on the authorities not to be lenient. We were hoping that he, he could be double sentence for life in jail. The Northwest Provincial Government has since called on people to respect and tolerate gender parity or face the full mighty of the law. And finally, police in the U.S. state of Missouri have shot dead another young black man days after the shooting of an unarmed black teenager by police in the suburb of Ferguson triggered unrest. The shooting has threatened to further escalate tension. Demonstrators waved signs and chanted slogans as they strolled up and down west of Florissant Avenue in Ferguson. Missouri has been shaken by racially charged unrest since a white police officer shot dead Michael Brown 10 days ago. Police have held tear gas canisters and fired rubber bullets at crowds as protests got violent. Channel African News. Thank you, Amanda. Amanda will be back at the bottom of the hour with our headlines. It is exactly 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on this Wednesday, August the 20th, the 232nd day of 2014 with exactly 133 days left in the year. Our top story, as the international community marked World Humanitarian Day yesterday, humanitarian situations remain worse in Sudan's rebel-held Nuba Mountains where half a million people are in dire need of aid. Channel Africa's James Shimangula reports. The Nuba Mountains, located in South Kordofan State of Republic of the Sudan and home to people belonging to the Nuba tribe, is exclusively controlled by rebels of Sudan People's Liberation Army SPLA North and its political wing known as SPLM North. The plight of more than half a million people there has been disclosed by the Secretary-General of the SPLA North, Yasir Saeed Arman. According to Arman, the people of Nuba Mountains are facing a serious humanitarian crisis, which he claims has been caused by the government of President Omar Hassan Ahmed al-Bashir in the Republic of the Sudan's capital Khartoum. Yasir Arman also claims that the government of President al-Bashir has prevented international humanitarian aid agencies from entering Nuba Mountains. General Bashir is uh, taking more than half a million uh, people as hostage. They have no food, they have no shelter, uh, they have no medicine, and uh, little has been done by the international community. Sudan is buying uh, time. There is a need this issue to be in the front seat. It should not be in the back seat, uh, given the present situation and many crises in Sudan. But we should remain focusing on the issue of humanitarian aid uh, to the peoples of Nuba Mountain and Blue Nile and Darfur. Blue Nile is one of Republic of the Sudan states. It is located southeast of Sudan. It is exclusively controlled by the Khartoum government, but SPLA North rebels make frequent attacks, which are repulsed by government troops. Underscoring the priority that the Khartoum government and the international community should focus on, Arman said. Right number one is to save life now. 
humanitarian uh, before politics, humanitarian aid should go immediately and now to those people to save their life before talking about development or any other agenda. Painting a vivid day-to-day picture of what happens in the Nuba Mountains, Arman had this to say. There are war crimes committed against them, a genocidal army and militia are fighting civil populations uh, in, in the hands of Bashir uh, without giving them humanitarian assistance. So there are organizations that sends food, but it's very little, the capacity is low. That's why we are talking about if they can survive, we could have not talked about this crisis. But it is a crisis because people are unable to survive and they may die. Uh, many of them soon because of this uh, policy of mass starvation. The question that arises is whether or not the rebels are willing to stop fighting government troops to pave the way for the distribution of aid to the needy. In the SPLM North, uh, we said again and again that uh, if the modalities of delivering food to those people require cessation of hostilities on a humanitarian ground, we are ready uh, to do that. But Yasir Arman has something tied to the rebel groups demand before delivery of food aid starts. In the first place, we need to have an agreement and to see what is the requirement to take food. Uh, those are our people, uh, and we can do anything to let the humanitarian aid to go to them. We are ready to do it if the modalities require. Shortly after SPLM North Rebels Secretary General Yasir Arman made those remarks on his group's willingness to enter into an agreement with the government of Khartoum to allow free delivery of aid to more than half a million people in the Nuba Mountains. I found Khartoum several times to get the government stand on allowing international agencies enter the Nuba Mountains, but my calls went unanswered. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The town of Amili has been under siege by armed groups affiliated with the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant ISIL for some weeks, according to a senior humanitarian official in the country. Amili, which is about 175 kilometers north of the Iraqi capital Baghdad, is home to between 15 and 20,000 people, mainly Shia Turkmen. They live under the constant threat of the Islamist militants who have been backing who have been attacking members of ethnic and religious minorities in the country Kieran Dwyer spokesperson for the UN office for the coordination of humanitarian affairs Ocha in Iraq spoke with UN radio's Reem Abaza about the plight of the besieged people of Amirli at the start of August, a number of community leaders tried to get children and women out of the village, but we had reports that they couldn't get out and even up to 30 people were killed in the attempt. That's 30 civilians killed. So it's under an intense pressure. The situation, and this is a minority community that lives in the town of Amalia, mostly Turkoman Shiites, they are running short on food. Their water availability is very low because they rely on power to pump water and there is no power. Medical facilities and basic medical items are lacking. 
the community is in crisis. We're hearing reports of at least two women have died in childbirth because they couldn't be got to any proper medical facility. And the fact that this armed group is threatening to kill the community is just a major crisis in this situation. What are you trying to do to try to reach these people with some help? The Iraqi authorities have requested the assistance of the United Nations mission to try to get the siege of the town of Amelie lifted. And they've also asked the United Nations humanitarian agencies to prepare urgent supplies and try to get those supplies to these 15 to 20,000 people. And again, many, many children among these people. The United Nations has mobilized humanitarian assistance, but we cannot get access to this area by road. This is an area that's controlled by the armed groups. In the affected areas, what are the most urgent needs right now that the UN is trying to respond to? Let me paint a picture for your audience about what's happened in Iraq this year so far in humanitarian terms. Since January this year, 1.2 million Iraqis have been displaced from their homes due to attacks, threats and fighting. We saw in the Anbar region a major displacement of hundreds of thousands of people earlier in the year. We also see continuing displacements because of ongoing fighting in that area. In June, when this so-called Islamic State group and other armed groups took the major city of Mosul, 650,000 people fled for their lives. And then at the beginning of August, when we saw this IS group advancing on Sinjar district, another 200,000 people fled directly into the Kurdish northern region. This is where we saw the drama of those at least 50,000 people, we believe, escape to the top of Mount Sinjar and where they were besieged until a security situation could be created and they got safe passage down the north side of the mountain where many crossed into Syria and made their way back into Iraq. Right now, the urgent critical need in addition to protecting vulnerable communities like the people of Amelie is feeding the hundreds of thousands of people who are displaced every day, making sure they have enough water, making sure they have shelter, making sure they have urgent medical assistance and making sure that they don't have an outbreak of infectious diseases and things because they don't have sufficient water and sanitation measures and immunization. And what is the United Nations trying to do right now to provide some sort of protection to the civilians affected by this crisis and this conflict? The United Nations in Iraq is not a peacekeeping mission. It doesn't have soldiers. So we can't provide physical protection. But we can, for example, when we have a situation like Amelie, when we had a situation like the mountain of Sinjar, we can try to tell the world the urgency of the situation. We work with the Iraqi authorities and here in the north with the Kurdish regional authorities to do everything we can to coordinate information to make sure people know where people are at risk so that the right actions can be taken to try to make sure they're protected. With these huge needs, what are the main challenges you're facing right now? Well, first of all, the security situation, because humanitarian workers cannot get access to many areas of Iraq in order to deliver aid. Too many humanitarian workers die in conflict zones, and we cannot enter these conflict zones in the situation in Iraq today. And that means millions of people don't get the aid that they need around the world, and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis are having a difficulty getting the aid we need to deliver to them, number one. Number two, the rapid 
unraveling of the humanitarian situation. In June, 650,000 people. In August, another 200,000 people. The security situation is still unstable and more could be displaced. So we need to urgently make sure we have the conditions for them to survive. And secondly, we need to stabilize that situation so that we can bring consistent services because many of these people, they can't go home soon. And that was Kieran Dwyer, spokesperson for the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Iraq, speaking to UN Radio's Rim Abaza. It is 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. An appeal for $14 million to scale up health operations in eastern Ukraine has been launched by the World Health Organization WHO. Thousands of people have been displaced by the ongoing fighting in Donetsk and Luhansk region. According to WHO, 15 hospitals have been damaged, 20 health facilities have closed and 70% of health workers in conflict areas have fled their places of work. To find out more about the appeal and the health situation in Ukraine, UN Radio's Nikola Krastev spoke to Dr. Dorit Nitsan, WHO representative in Ukraine. The situation in Ukraine has been deteriorating slowly but consistently over months now. And in the past weeks, we know that there are many more IDPs from one hand. And from the other hand, people that are in Donetsk city, as well as Lugansk, many of them have no access to health services. So what we are trying to do with this appeal is to secure our activities, our response plan. But we call it filling the gaps because Ukraine is capable of dealing with the current situation, but they need to get organized. They need better coordination as well as better response plan themselves, strategic thinking and strategic way of tackling these issues. So what we are trying to do in the response is to work closely with the central authorities, mainly with the Ministry of Health and the state emergency services, to enable them to do the things that we see in the field that are so needed. And from the other hand, to work also bottom approach that looking at what the areas need and how to support them. Many people have left to Russia, as you know, and many fled into Ukraine, but to Kiev and West. So those who who stayed in the East need much more support. Is there any particular donors this appeal is aimed to because $40 million is a significant contribution? Yeah, the $40 million is not only health. The larger amount is for everything. For the health sector, it's 14, and for WHO, it's 7.8. Are the money already available, or they eventually will become available once donors respond? Hopefully. I know that UNHCR received confirmation of some money. UNDP is in the process, but hopefully they will get some funds for rehabilitation and reconstruction. And the big issue now that we are dealing is the winterization, since the winter is at the doorstep. But for us, we just received a very, very small amount of money, and we use WHO Global Fund that we have already. So can you tell me approximately 
how many of the WHO workers in Ukraine are able to work in those affected areas? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, due to security reasons, UNDSS does not allow us to go to Lugansk and Donetsk. So what we did in WHO, and actually it's already for four months, we recruited on, we call it APW, it's Agreement for Work. It's people that are working with WHO but are not UN staff. And these are doctors that are working in Donetsk, Lugansk, and all other regions in Ukraine. So we have those people, and they are our monitors as well. They will also assist in dissemination of the trucks, for example, when they arrive. We made a trick huh, to get people on ground. Well, I mean, you do whatever you have to do, I mean, just to get yeah. the job done. Yeah, but exactly. I understand they're still, I mean, paid personnel. They're not volunteers, right? They're not volunteers. They're paid. They're okay, paid, they're paid, but as the contractors. But then we benefit from the fact that they don't have to leave the city as UN staff because that's their home. I also know that Ukraine is one of the uh, very affected countries in Europe, particularly with HIV AIDS. So can you tell me what's the situation with those people who are affected by the crisis with HIV AIDS? Yes. Again, while those in Lugansk and Donetsk clearly do not have access to care, we don't have the numbers, but it is alarming. And the other thing is the HIV patients in Ukraine are very well organized and in the system. And as far as we know, those who are registered IDPs do receive the care for HIV, but many of the IDPs are not registered. And as such, if they appear in another oblast, when they come there, they do not appear on the list, and they then the oblast does not get paid for the medications, and that's where the gap filling activities will go in. We are working with UNAIDS on that closely, and our plan, we are going to have mobile emergency primary care units of doctor and, you know, those filters going paid by us will go from camp to camp on a daily basis and meet with the people, examine them, and link them with the health services. Those that are not registered, they will try to refer them to the agencies that register, and those that refuse to register will still have to fill in the gaps. That was Dr. Doris Nitzan, World Health Organization representative in Ukraine, talking to UN Radio's Nikola Krastev. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It is 8.21 Central African time, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, let's go back in history. Today, in 1998, the U.S. launches missile attacks against alleged al-Qaeda terrorist camps in Afghanistan and a pharmaceutical plant in Sudan in retaliation for attacks earlier in that year on U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. Here's former U.S. President Bill Clinton talking about that attack in 1998. Today, I ordered our armed forces to strike at terrorist-related facilities in Afghanistan and Sudan because of the threat they present to our national security. I have said many times that terrorism is one of the greatest dangers we face in this new global era. We saw its twisted mentality at work last week in the embassy bombings in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, which took the lives of innocent Americans and Africans 
and injured thousands more. Today, we have struck back. And that was former U.S. President Bill Clinton talking on this day in history in 1998. South Africans are answering the call to assist in the containment of the Ebola virus plaguing the West African region. Local NGO doctors across borders, DAB, will in the coming fortnight travel to Liberia to form part of a global effort to provide medical assistance to that country, which is straining under what is known as the world's most virulent disease. The virus has now killed over 1,200 people in the region, making governments and countries desperate for any form of help. Busi Chimombe reports. The number of infections and deaths from Ebola continue to grow. The death toll of 1,200 makes the 2014 Ebola outbreak the largest in history. It is also the first time the virus has manifested in the West African region. It has been reported mostly in Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea with some cases in Nigeria. Responding to the dire situation is South African NGO, Doctors Across Borders, that is preparing to leave for Liberia in the next two weeks. DAB Chief Medical Officer Jackie Harmser. Armed with faith and a program which we um, have tested and trialed over 15 to 20 years, um, in fact 20 years of experience in the field in rural areas, which includes not only um, a product but also the nourishment and the um, attending to malnourishment, of course, which um, the body needs to be recovered from, as well as a detoxing program that is very effective in um, the body's handling of the debris following any um, viral attack. The region is desperate for any help it can get. The affected countries have undergone civil unrest in recent years, have weak public health systems, as well as infrastructural and human resource shortages. According to the World Health Organization, there are on average three to four health workers for every 10,000 people in the region. In addition, there's no cure for the virus, with only an experimental drug from the U.S., ZMAP, offering some hope. Lois Brutus, Liberia's ambassador to South Africa, welcomes the initiative of Doctors Across Borders. All have to try to do it. It's not one, it's not only the WHO or, you know, or the various governments. It's us in our collectivity who must be able to respond and let the person with the best um, you know, medic, uh, uh, medication win so that when this virus takes its ugly uh, face again, we will at that point know how to respond to it effectively and to stop it from recurring. DAB will be providing a homeopathic treatment to patients in a specific region of Liberia, an initiative to be facilitated by the Liberian government. While the scale of the outbreak has seen the WHO allow the use of experimental drugs, those not fully tested for safety, efficacy and side effects, the organization insists that informed consent of patients who receive these is critical. Sarah Barber of the WHO how we can really make patients understand the risk that they're taking, that there is a potential for side effects. This may involve community leaders. This may involve uh, uh, getting the engagement of family members. This may involve 
many discussions with the, with the research team or the doctors themselves so that patients can fully understand the risk that they're taking. But I think that um, this is absolutely necessary and we have to have informed consent, we have to have complete transparency um, in any allocation of, of these kind of experimental treatments. The Doctors Across Borders team will consist of six to eight medical officers and any donation they can receive from fellow South Africans, they say, are welcome. And that report by Busi Chimombe in Johannesburg. Swaziland journalists have appealed for international solidarity in their fight for media freedom in Southern Africa's last absolute monarch. The calls come after a human rights activist and a journalist were jailed for criticizing the kingdom's judicial system last month. As Chabankosi reports, the Swazi journalists warned that unless pressure is applied on King Mswati II for reform, more journalists could end up in prison. He is just a journalist who was writing what he has heard, what he has noticed happening in the judiciary system. But he's not a criminal. He's just an honest man who hates corruption. You know, he can't keep things to himself. He voiced them out. I don't know. Is that bad? A question from Figile Makubu, the wife of jailed Sutherland newspaper editor Peggy Makubu. Makubu and human rights lawyer Tulani Masego were sentenced to two years imprisonment after criticizing Swazi Chief Justice Michael Ramudibedi in opinion pieces. Swazi journalists called them prisoners of conscience and described their arrests as a continuing assault on the media and attempts to silence the critics of King Swazi's lavish lifestyle while the majority lives in poverty. Lawyer Pagamashili is the head of the Media Institute of Southern Africa in Swaziland. It is as a result of, of, of this threatening environment that we have seen a decline in, in fair reporting and especially in critical reporting on, on pursuing issues that concerns corruption and human rights violations that are perpetuated by the state. We, we do recognize that the media can play a positive role in building a, a democratic Swaziland, but only if there is an enabling environment which would allow them to do so. The Media Workers Union representing Swazi journalists claim the king owns or has extensive shareholding in most of the country's media houses. This, they argue, make it easy for critical journalists like Makubu to be singled out and silenced. Media Workers Union of Swaziland President Ngobile Khachwago says journalists are finding it hard to choose between pursuing their mandate as a watchdog and being passive recorders of events to protect their media licenses. She says there is self-censorship in Swazi newsrooms. The continued fear of the unknown has given birth to self-censorship and at times has deprived citizens of information and hence we continue walking in the darkness. Censorship has been discovered to exist in Swaziland and that has compromised the media's role of information dissemination. The continued harassment and intimidation of the media sector has added fear to journalists in particular and as mortal human beings, journalists will continue harboring fears as well as concerns about job security. Jovial Randau of the Southern African Editors Forum believes that solidarity with Swazi journalists needs to go beyond statements criticizing the regime. 
He says journalists need to come out with concrete programs and campaigns against King Mswati's role. But he warns that for this to be effective, journalists also need to clean up their acts. We need to make sure that as we throw stones at these governments, uh, that we ourselves don't live in glass houses. We need to make sure that as we tell the story of Swaziland, the story of Mozambique, or any other country, that we tell the, the, the stories in the best way possible, we practice the best form of journalism um, so that when the king comes back and um, wants to throw you into jail, um, he can't because the story is solid. Proper journalism has been practiced. Many local and international observers condemned the sentencing of Makubu and his co-accused Tulani Masego, saying the trial highlighted the crumbling state of free speech while raising more questions over the independence of the justice system. Makubu's lawyers are appealing their convictions. I am Sichabagankosi in Johannesburg. It's 8.31 Central African time and our headlines are up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. The Gaza fighting resumes following the collapse of a truce talks in Egypt. The Ebola virus kills 84 people in just three days, bringing the global death toll to 1,229. And Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott says a new underwater hunt for the missing Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 has a reasonable chance of finding the plane. Details at night. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Amanda. World Humanitarian Day was marked yesterday to honor humanitarian workers who have lost their lives and those who continue to risk theirs while providing aid to people in need. This year, South Africa's official World Humanitarian Day event assisted high school learners and university students to gain an understanding of global humanitarian responses and motivate them to becoming the next generation of humanitarian heroes. The event was held at the University of the Witwatersrand here in Johannesburg. Special speakers from the UN and the South African government provided insights into the realities of working as a diplomat and as a humanitarian worker on the ground. For more on this, we earlier spoke to Desiree Koschlek, Youth Program Director at the South African Institute of International Affairs. I think it's incredibly important to first off realize that when we're talking about humanitarian heroes and volunteering and these sort of things, it's not always necessarily going to a conflict zone or going to a place and responding after a natural disaster. It's also thinking about how we better interact with people around us and people in need. And I think that was a big thing for our young people yesterday. Um, another big part of our program at SIA, the South African Institute of International Affairs, is a program we have called Model United Nations. And so many of the learners and students 
students that were there yesterday are actually going to be participating in a massive model United Nations conference on the 13th of September, looking at issues like the global refugee crisis and the situation in the Central African Republic. And so for them, it was really important to connect the dots, if you will, about these things that are often looked at almost in an academic sort of way, and to actually connect it back to who are the people on the ground, many of which are local people doing things to help in the lives of other people. Um, And yeah, so it's incredibly important that all of us think about how we can be involved in our own way. Now, who qualifies to become a humanitarian uh, worker and what sort of selection process do you go through? Well, I can't speak necessarily from the the UN's perspective on some of these sort of things, but there's various jobs, and I think what was very interesting yesterday is that there's a a video that was premiered on World Humanitarian Day called Voices from the Field, and they highlighted the work of many different people in many different roles, from doctors to pilots to um, sanitation workers who are helping with water issues to child protective services types of people who are helping um, young people who were um, child soldiers, actually in DRC. So I think it can run the gambit. And I think one thing that was also shared with our young people yesterday is that, you know, a lot of people think to go into these types of fields that you have to be studying only things like politics or international relations, but they were really emphasizing that, you know, we actually need people who, who study agriculture or engineering, um, all these sorts of things. And I think it's an incredibly important message for us to side because, you know, a lot of us are thinking about how do we get the job with the most money and we're not always thinking about how can we actually do better for the world and for our fellow person. Now, Desiree, can you just touch on how yesterday's events went and uh, the sort of reaction you got, especially from young school learners? Uh, you know, varsity students are, are slightly older and maturity levels are totally different. Now, high school learners, on the other hand, you know, are still trying to find themselves and decide what sort of field they want to go into. What was their reaction? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things that we're just trying to do is to try to expose young people to what is actually happening in the world. And I think, especially for young South Africans to understand what is happening in the continent. You know, we sometimes feel disconnected from some of these things, but it's very real and we're all interconnected. Um, And I think what's been really interesting with our programs is we have kids from grade 8 through grade 12 and then the varsity side as well. And by and large, the majority of the people that were there yesterday, over 100 actually, were, were high school learners in that age range from grade 8 through grade 12. And I think a lot of times we don't expect as much from our young people. And when you're with them, it's quite exciting to see that if you raise the bar just a bit, that they more than surpass your expectations. And so yesterday we actually broke up to get started. We broke up the groups into three different groups, um, looking at a natural disaster, looking at a refugee crisis situation, and looking at an emerging conflict um, with like a war zone type of situation. And the young people, the learners, um, together with varsity students as kind of mentor facilitators, were meant to um, chart out steps that they would do to respond to these situations, and they each gave feedback afterwards. And I have to say that the the people from the UN and from Durko as well were, were quite surprised, I think, and many of them were responding that, wow, you, you guys are really understanding the nuance of this. And when given the opportunity to really engage, I think in a, in a more educational way, 
Now, finally, Desiree, with regards to the whole program and, uh, you know, young children getting better understanding of um, the happenings of of the world and sort of uh, different industries or employment they can go into, do you think this is a sort of program that should maybe be introduced to young people at an early stage of their high schooling uh, and and so on until their varsity years and when they start working, so to make the right choices or, um, you know, to give back and, and have a, a better understanding and empathy towards these sort of crises that we deal with in, in the world? I think anything that allows young people to build skills while also understanding how the world works is so important for the world we live in at the moment. And I think we are often seeing things from sometimes a very small point of view, even maybe sometimes just from our own lives, and we get caught up in that. We don't understand how we're all connected. Um, You know, one of the UN speakers was really emphasizing yesterday to the, the people in the audience to say, you know, what happens in Paris or what happens in West Africa with Ebola, all of these things come back, and, and we, we are all affected by this. And so I think it is so important that we understand these things. I think it's also incredibly important that we build these skills. You know, these um, these high school learners and varsity students involved in, in Model United Nations and other programs that we run are doing very serious research on global issues. They're understanding issues from multiple viewpoints. So when we ask them, for example, to take on the role of a country and they're now representing, say, Ghana, they have to understand not only the issue but also what Ghana would do on the issue. And then how does that fit into the African context? How does that then fit into the global context? And I think often we we look at issues from one side. We just take an issue, say, like the Ebola, and we just understand it from one angle, and we don't understand all the different um, complexities. And I think this is what this is the type of knowledge and skills that we actually need for regardless of whatever skill, whatever work path you're going into, you need to be able to understand the world and how all the different parts um, fit together. And I think that we're trying to do that. And that was Desiree Koshlik, Youth Program Director at the South African Institute of International Affairs, joining us earlier today. It's 8.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, the, the United Nations has dispersed a record number of peacekeepers in Africa in recent years, deploying soldiers to trouble spots such as Sudan, South Sudan and the DRC. Yet the blue helmets and thousands of other soldiers sent by African regional groups have failed to prevent fresh spasms of violence. But they have been hobbled by weak mandates and a shortage of manpower and equipment. Now, our question to you today is how successful have peacekeeping operations been in Africa? Email us on info at channelafrica.org. Send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Pesa, a service which uses text messages to send and receive money through mobile phones, is now used by more than 18 million people in 13 countries. Since its debut in Kenya seven years ago, the service has registered nearly 17 million users. Mobile network Vodacom introduced M-Pesa in South Africa in 2010, and while the initial uptake was strong, it didn't have an overwhelming response since 
seen in markets such as Kenya and Tanzania. Vodacom recently revamped its Mpesa services, relaunching with more than 8,000 agents at informal outlets and major retail partners to attract more users. Mpesa has also migrated to Europe with the launch in Romania. For more on this, Khumutsu Mopulane spoke to Herman Singh, Vodacom's managing executive of Mobile Commerce. In Kenya, Mpesa is used by 75% of all the adults in the country. They use it to save money with, they use it to send money to people, they use it to make payments in stores, and they use it to uh, pay bills and uh, buy airtime. We launched it in Tanzania. We had a very similar situation in Vodacom. About a quarter to a third of all of our Vodacom customers in Tanzania have used Mpesa for the same thing. When we launched it in South Africa, we found less than 3% of our customers used it. And really, we needed to go back and understand why. And there were four reasons that it wasn't taken up as well as it was taken up in East Africa. The first reason was it was uh, difficult to register for the service. The second was the functions that customers needed were not in the product. And the third was the distribution. In other words, it was quite far for customers to go to find an Mpesa outlet. Finally, we didn't have enough loyalty components built in. So we've made changes to all four of those items when we relaunched it in South Africa recently. It has also been launched in Romania, and many say that this is because many people in Romania don't have bank accounts. Which other European countries is Vodacom looking into launching PESA? Many of the countries in Eastern Europe fall into this category. They're very similar to South Africa. In South Africa, roughly 9 million people have internet banking, and roughly 9 million people are unbanked. This is the same country. And when you go to Eastern Europe, you find the same thing. So any country where Vodafone is present and it's an emerging market that's semi-developed like Romania, we are looking at, at launching it. So a country like Albania, for example, over time, will obviously receive it and other countries in Eastern Europe. How is this service used, basically? What would a potential Vodacom user do to send or receive money? You would uh, dial star triple one hash and you'll register. To register, you key in your name and your ID number. And we'll just check with the Department of Home Affairs that you're a South African citizen and that you have an ID book and that you're over the age of 16. Once we've confirmed that, you can choose a PIN and then your wallet is open. It takes about five minutes. You can then find any Mpesa agent and at the agent you can deposit cash. And we load your wallet and you can even buy an Mpesa voucher. And you can load an Mpesa voucher into the Mpesa wallet. The Mpesa voucher can be bought for 20, 50, 100, and 200 rand denominations. It's like loading airtime. Instead of loading airtime, you load your wallet. Once the money is in your wallet, you can then go to the menu inside Mpesa, going through star triple one hash, and you can then send money to other people by keying in their cell phone number, or you can buy airtime for yourself or for other people. If you use Mpesa to buy airtime, Vodacom will double the airtime that you purchase. The extra airtime we give you has to be used the same day that we give it to you. So we are seeing a lot of our customers are opening wallets and they're loading Mpesa with money. And this is a great way for consumers to get great value from Vodacom and a great way to send money to relatives and friends who, who may not be close to you. And we know that in India, you know, currently they have an estimated 1.5 million users of Mpesa. Could you tell us about the operations that side? India, again, is very similar to South Africa in some respects. There's a large bank population. State Bank of India, for example, has over 100,000 bank branches. So it's a, it's a big bank. Uh, and South Africa has big banks as well. 
but there's a very large number of people in India who don't have access to bank accounts. So there, there's no easy way to save your money, store your money, send your money, and make payments and buy airtime. And that's exactly what Vodafone has done with M-Pesa. In India, it's called M-Pesa. Pesa in Hindi means money, and Pesa in Swahili means money. We've launched right across India now, and it's growing at a few hundred thousand customers every month. It's been adopted very widely. And we think it's going to get adopted very widely in South Africa. We've launched it a week ago. Uh, already, the adoption rate has exceeded our wildest expectations. Customers seem to love it. We've had a number of wallets opened, and already customers are beginning to use it extensively for exactly the same purpose they're using it in India. That was Herman Singh, Vodacom's managing executive of Mobile Commerce, talking to Komutomo Pulani. It's 8.46 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehuku. Sub-Saharan Africa has experienced substantial growth in its middle class over the past 14 years. This is according to a Standard Bank report released yesterday. The report, titled Understanding Africa's Middle Class, has found that there are 15 million middle-class households in 11 of Sub-Saharan Africa top economies this year, up from 4.6 million in 2000 and 2.4 million in 1990. This is an increase of 230% over 14 years. The 11 economies in the study are Angola, Ethiopia, Ghana, Kenya, Mozambique, Nigeria, South Sudan, Sudan, Tanzania, Uganda and Zambia. Meanwhile, the South African Reserve Bank has reacted with a disappointment to credit rating agency Moody's decision to downgrade the four top South African banks. The bank says it doesn't agree with the reasons the agency has given for the decision and that the banking sector remains healthy and robust. The agency has cut the credit rating of Standard Bank, APSA, FNB and NetBank by a notch. It has also put them on review for further cuts. Moody's says there is a lower likelihood of support for the central bank to protect creditors following African banks' crisis. The decision is the latest blow to the country's banking sector. Statistics South Africa is expected to show that consumer inflation has eased slightly in the past few weeks. Consumer price inflation is forecast to have declined marginally to 6.4% year-on-year in July from 6.6% in the previous months. The improvement in the inflation forecast is largely due to a slowdown in food and fuel prices. But some analysts have warned that consumers will still remain under pressure. Laven Gopal is a marketing analyst. A change in inflation, whilst it might be a fractional move, would certainly not affect the average man's living costs. At this stage, we've noticed that a number of the prices that the average person is used to it doesn't seem to fall as prices fall. You notice petrol prices go up, and they either go flat or slightly lower changes. Food prices also sticky downwards in terms of its price build up. So unfortunately, the consumer is forced to 
alter the way he spends. And uh, this means that he's able to consume less goods and services as he was in previous periods. A slight change or cooling in the inflation price may be a little too late. Still with this economic update, Africa's biggest grocery shop group, uh, ShopRite, says it has lost close to $1 billion as a result of the strike in the mining sector in South Africa. The retailer says it saw a decline in food purchases, 50% uh, of its consumers come from the lower end of the market. The retailer has reported a turnover of $10 billion, with trading profit increasing 10.5% from $9 billion to $10 billion. ShopRite has presented its result for the 12 months to June 2014. CEO Whitey Person. Well, we are 33% of the country's market share, formal market share, and probably in the lower end of the lower LSMs, we're probably substantially more, probably to the 50%. So that 10 billion, the food portion of that 10 billion didn't come our way as food purchase. People couldn't afford food, so they didn't have jobs. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.62 South African rands, 8.74 Botswana Pula, 6.08 Zambian Quachas, 0.59 British Pound, 7.4 Euro, Gold, 1.295 Dollars, Platinum, 1.435 Dollars an ounce, Brand Crude, 1.0150 cents a barrel. Economic Update. Thank you, Tabiso. Up next, our sports update with Figile Lingwati. Now, sports update this hour. Starting off with cricket news, Hashim Amla has been arrested for the Proteas' third one-day international against Zimbabwe on Thursday. South Africa beat Zimbabwe by 61 runs in the second ODI to clinch the three-match series on Tuesday in Bulawayo. The Proteas test captain has been given a few days off before returning to action next week in the triangular series also involving Australia in Harare. Amla's absence is to set is set to give an opportunity to the likes of Riley Rousseau, Mtogozi Sishezi and Merchant Zilange who are yet to receive game time in the series. Captain Abby Villiers says he's impressed with the betting depth shown by the lower order in the series winning performance. In rugby news, Springbok team doctor Craig Roberts has given the team a clean bill of health upon their arrival in Buenos Aires in Argentina and says that all members of the touring Springbok party will be available for selection. Roberts also says Willem Alberts and Victor Metfield have been left behind in South Africa to focus on their rehabilitation and the duo should be available to travel with the Springboks to Perth in Australia in two weeks' time. Thankfully, no major problems to report from the, from the game on the weekend, only the usual bumps and bruises. Uh, obviously, a long flight getting over here, so uh, we'll, we'll assess one or two more of the guys uh, today, but uh, at this stage, it looks like everyone will be training. So it's like we'll have a fit squad for the game on the weekend. Uh, obviously, the two guys that we, we left behind was Willem Alberts with a hamstring and Victor Matfield, who's coming back from a knee cartilage problem. Uh, our plans with them are to have them available for the Perth test. So that's what we're working towards at the moment. 
And on to football news, Algeria is set to host the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations should Libya be disqualified by the Confederation of African Football following ongoing violence in the country. Algeria Football Federation President Mohamed Rarua says his country has the required infrastructure to organize the continental showpiece if called upon at any time by CAF. Libya is scheduled to host the 2017 edition of the Africa Cup of Nations, but the renewed armed violence between rebel groups in the capital, Tripoli, and second-largest city, Benghazi, could force CAF to move the event elsewhere. The Executive Committee's annual general meeting will be held on the 19th of September in Addis Ababa, during which the names of the countries to host the 2019 and 2021 editions will be announced. And finally, with motorsport. Superbike Grand Prix, the FIM and Dona have confirmed that the South African round of this year's Superbike World Championship will not be replaced. It is announced at the beginning of this month that the Pakisa Freeway, which is due to host round 12 on the weekend of the 19th of October, has been dropped from the 2014 calendar after the track failed to achieve the approval certificate. That's homologation. The cancellation of the South African race means there are only three rounds left once the season resumes. Spain will get things going again on the 7th of September, followed by France on the 5th of October and the season finale in Qatar on the 2nd of November. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Raz and Shine at the Sawa, humanitarian situation worsens in Sudan's rebel-held Nuba Mountains and South African doctors to assist in Ebola-affected countries. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or tweet us and follow us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz, on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Kofi Olomide with a song titled Loi.